Welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm your host, Dr. Roberta Monzani. I am an anesthetist and I'm the chief of the surgical day hospital unit inside Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan, Italy. Our anesthesiology team is part of the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care Unit. Our focus is on all elective patients undergoing multi-specialty surgery with hospitalization of a few hours in same day or at most two three nights. I'm in the general committee of the Surgical Italian Society Ambulatory Day Surgery. I have been the scientific secretary of our Italian Scientific Society from 2018-2021, and my special expertise are perioperative care, organization of clinical care pathway, local regional anesthesia, non-operating room anesthesia, and teamwork anesthesiology, nurses, and surgeons. I am currently a member of Forum One Scientific uh, Committee, ESAIC, and today we'll, we'll be speaking about the management of chronic disease in the perioperative period. And there we have invited Dr. Joanna Berger Estilita. So she is consultant in anesthesia and intensive care, working in Bern, Switzerland, she is currently the deputy chair of the part second examination of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care and member with me of the scientific committee for one of the same scientific society. Her main areas of interest are medical education in anesthesia, gender equity and perioperative care, and she has coordinated master classes in perioperative medicine and is a member of the anesthesia and perioperative care section of the European Society Intensive Care of Medicine. She is currently involved in the Safe Brain Initiative, which aims to evaluate patient reported outcome in anesthesia. So, Joanna, it's a very pleasure to meet you this afternoon. Thank and you, Roberta. And it's a very pleasure to share this big argument. And uh, we try to do all our best and try to uh, speak about some points because we cannot uh, speak about uh, all the problem of uh, chronic disease of our surgical patients. But we have some dogma in the management of chronic disease in the perioperative period. And some example can be uh, that uh, all anesthesiologists know about the pre-fasting period, but the traditional patients were required to fast for several hours before undergoing anesthesia to prevent aspiration of stomach contents. This is very dangerous for us. However, recent research suggests that the shorter fasting period may be safe and more beneficial for patients. A second dogma that we have very uh, deep in our mind is uh, the use of preoperative benzodiazepine. Uh, this type of drugs are commonly used to reduce anxiety 
before surgery, but their routine use has been questioned due to their potential adverse effects, such as uh, respiratory depression and prolonged sedation. Is not uh, less important the use of opioids. We use a very high dose of opioids for acute pain management. Are effective for pain, we know, but their routine use is in high doses for acute pain management has been linked to adverse effects such as another time respiratory depression, nausea, and constipation. Last but not least, the use of crystalloid fluids has the primary choice for resuscitation. While crystalloid fluids are often used for resuscitation, recent research suggests that balanced crystalloid solution or colored fluids may be more effective and safer. So we have many dogmas, but what about chronic disease? Uh, okay, so I think you um, hit the spot with with your evaluation of what it is at the moment uh, common dogmas in uh, in anesthesia. When the dogma, when you mean by dogma, you refer to a commonly accepted belief or practice that is not necessarily supported by evidence. And it is important for anesthetists to critically evaluate such practices and base their decisions on the most current evidence-based um, uh, medicine to uh, provide the best possible care for their patients. It is difficult uh, sometimes because the evidence is sparse. Uh, we do not have a lot of publications out there that can support our practice in the way we want it to. And um, currently in the management of chronic diseases in the perioperative period, um, I think the aim is to continue the patient's usual medications unless there is a compelling reason to discontinue them. Um, and this is because abrupt discontinuation of medications, be them so be it uh, um, antihypertensive drugs or um, anti-diabetics um, or um, some other medications can cause some rebound effects or withdrawal symptoms, uh, which may increase the risk of perioperative complications. Um, for example, uh, as I mentioned, patients with hypertension, we generally recommend to continue the antihypertensive medications perioperatively, except for the um, um, so-called um, angiotensin inhibitors. Um, because we know that uncontrolled hypertension can increase the risk of cardiovascular complications. Uh, in patients with diabetes, on the other hand, um, it is important to continue insulin or oral hypoglycemic medications uh, to maintain glucose control and prevent um, perioperative hyperglycemia. I don't know if the approach to this category of patient can always be considered this way, because as you rightly said before, if the new guideline of the preoperative fasting period were respected, there would be no problem. But fasting usually starts at midnight, we know. And perhaps the surgery is scheduled to be performed in the afternoon of the following day. So in these cases, diabetic patients still have to take their hypoglycemic therapies. Well, in this case, um, I mean, I took a look at 
what the evidence shows and what the guidelines are at the moment. And uh, we have a very interesting publication uh, recently in anesthesia, um, in the journal Anesthesia, that um, separates very well um, which types of patients and which types of drugs should we stop. It's the, at the moment there are so many uh, insulins and anti-diabetic drugs, which is for the uh, anesthetists it's almost impossible to keep track. So I would suggest um, even if we have surgeries that occur in diabetic patients in the later afternoon, which should should not be the case, we should always do. Uh, we should always try to put these patients in the in the first um, in the first. Uh, part of the list, so so to say. Um, early in the morning. Early in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it is important to, in this case, have a more individualized approach. Um, this happens constantly for, for you probably as well, that we have to discuss with the patient when he should eat the last uh, meal, which meal would that be, uh, if he can drink any kind of... Um, uh, so if he can uh, he, uh, hydrate uh, up to two hours uh, before surgery. Mm -hmm. So all of this needs to be very individualized, um, taking into account, as you said, um, both the type of patient, the type of medication that he or she is taking and uh, the time uh, where the surgery is going to occur. And also the type of surgery, because uh, for minor surgery and you work yeah. in, uh, in the daycare setting, it's completely different as for someone who has a surgery that is going to last 12 to 15 hours. Um, we are speaking about the tailored approach. Exactly. Relation now. Exactly. And uh, it is, uh, for example, by applying the uh, ERAS death, especially in the preoperative period, enhanced recovery after surgery can help us to prepare in the better way our surgical patient, right? Absolutely. Um, currently, uh, the management of chronic diseases in the perioperative period involves uh, a multidisciplinary approach. This is this is clear to me. That focuses on identifying and optimizing patients with chronic conditions prior to, sur to surgery. Um, the goal of this is obviously to minimize the risks uh, of perioperative complications and um, uh, ensure that the patient has optimal outcomes. Uh, this includes a comprehensive assessment, um, which includes, as we know, and we we always like to have this, uh, the, the candidates in the exam to tell us this, includes a review of the patient's medical history, physical examination, laboratory tests, and other diagnostic tests, um, which help us uh, identify the present of, presence of chronic conditions and other comorbidities that could affect the patient's perioperative care. You know that by now we try to ask only for tests that truly represent added value to the clinical risk assessment of our patients. We have different guidelines that said these things. So usually patients with comorbidities tend to be already in therapy in return. In your opinion, is it always useful or necessary to ask for the complete battery of blood tests in addition to the necessary instrumental investigation? Well, we have a lot of indications that if we are dealing with uh, healthy patients that we probably do not need this. Um, if we are dealing with patients with comorbidities, we we have to explore um, probably the blood chemistry tests in, in, in a bit more detail. Um, 
I know that this practice varies from country to country in Europe. And um, the more defensive medicine we practice, the more likely we are to uh, to request um, a complete battery of tests. So I can't really say, I, I can tell you what uh, what my practice is, but I can't really say exactly what the recommendation would be. Um, I think, again, taking into account um, what you said, the, the tailored approach is is certainly the best way because then we need I mean we don't we will we then don't um, use um, these uh, tests abusively also and is it the anesthetist who has to do it or is the patient sent to his or her general practitioner for therapeutic remediation? Well, this is another question that varies um, throughout Europe. Um, I think the, at the moment we are moving towards a perioperative clinic. Uh, this perioperative clinic may be uh, run by an uh, anesthetists, but not only anesthetists and other um, healthcare specialists. Uh, again, in this uh, multi-disciplinary um, approach. Um, although I have to say, uh, that if we have to sort some aspects of the care, then probably we are the best to do it um, because we know exactly what the outcomes um, are that are that we are looking for, uh, which is different. For example, if we want to send the patient back to the to his GP or uh, uh, because the GP doesn't exactly know what is relevant for us. So on the one hand, I think either we should take no, also the surgery. Exactly. So either we should take over or at least we should deal with it in an interdisciplinary context of a perioperative clinic. I think it is appropriate to make a distinction. In the case of elective minor surgery, you said before, is known that the patient must have comorbidity in compensation and under adequate pharmacological treatment, especially for the patient who is discharged within a few hours for which his perioperative path is not totally managed by the surgeon and the anesthetist, but returns to his general practitioner. Not the same for major surgery, where the length of hospitalization allows and requires a different management of the patient. Recent guideline from European Society of Cardiology perhaps help us to better understand the problem. What do you think? I agree with you. Um, uh, I think the management of chronic diseases in the perioperative period um, certainly differ depending on the type of surgery and the length of hospitalization. Uh, in the case of elective minor surgery, uh, patients with comorbidities should be well controlled and under adequate pharmacological treatment as they will dis be, be discharged in a few hours um, and their perioperative management will be primarily managed with their general practitioner or at home. However, for major surgery, the length of hospitalization allows for a more comprehensive and individualized management of the patient's chronic diseases. Um, this may involve uh, both the, the preoperative optimization of medical conditions, the continued medication management during the perioperative period, and the post-operative um, monitoring of complications or prevention of, of such complications. The recent guidelines of the uh, European Society of Cardiology, which have been 
also written in part with with the ESAIC um, on the management of patients with cardiovascular disease undergoing non-cardiac surgery, uh, provide important recommendations for this management of chronic diseases. I recommend people listening to this podcast to take a look. Um, and again, these guidelines emphasize the importance of a multidisciplinary approach involving the primary care provider, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist to ensure optimal perioperative management. Um, the guidelines have several important recommendations, uh, which include uh, the preoperative assessment. Um, so there is patients with known risk of cardiovascular disease, disease should undergo a comprehensive assessment to identify and optimize modifiable risk factors, includes uh, perioperative medications so that patients continue their chronic medications during the perioperative period unless there's a specific contraindication. Um, monitoring, so patients with significant cardiovascular disease should go uh, undergo continuous monitoring during the perioperative period um, and uh, glyce glycemia control. So uh, with patient, in patients with diabetes, um, there's clear indications on how to monitor and maintain uh, glucose levels within a target range to reduce uh, perioperative complications. Um, other things include also um, some aspects of fluid management. Um, you've spoken before that the balanced fluid therapy um, should be used for volume replacement during surgery, uh, but the colloids have not been ex have, have not been excluded. And obviously, in aspects of postoperative care, um, uh, include um, concept of concepts of the areas as well, like early mobilization, adequate pain management and um, monitoring signs of uh, myocardial infarction, the so-called MINS, heart failure or arrhythmias. So overall, again, I would probably underline the concept of a tailored approach based on what we already know of the patient. Listening to you, I can say that this is a very important area, clinical area, because uh, we need to, to change many approaches, but uh, each one of us need to be very careful with the patient and know everything about the clinical situation and not also clinical, but also social, psychological, clinical uh, situation of our patient. So in this <laughs> pot, would you like to tell me how do you think it is possible to challenge the dogma in the man management of chronic disease in the perioperative period. What, well, we, can, well, what, what we can do, what we can. Well, we've just our message exactly. We <laughs> talked about a lot. Uh, we talked a lot about dogmas, and uh, this obviously requires uh, a critical evaluation of existing beliefs and practices. Uh, with a focus on evidence-based approaches. And uh, because sometimes we may be doing too much or, or something that is not evidence-based. Many times, many yes. times we do much. <laughs> and uh, this implies obviously conducting research um, to evaluate the, effect the effectiveness of current perioperative management strategies for chronic diseases. There has been a recent publication on the British Journal of Anesthesia regarding uh, prehabilitation, which at the moment shows that no um, program is better than the other one. So this is something that we should take into account. The developing guidelines is uh, is very useful for, for all clinicians because um, they reflect the best available evidence and, um, and then 
we have sort of like a, a, a recipe of what we can, should or shouldn't do. Um, I think, well, but I'm I'm biased in this. I think education of healthcare providers is fundamental. Um, this includes also knowing how to use the guidelines and uh, and uh, implementing new practices and promoting interdisciplinary communication. Um, because again, we have seen that um, the management of chronic diseases goes through um, an interdisciplinary concept and a perioperative clinic. So this needs to be, uh, people need to communicate with each other. Um, and then using technology, um, we, we can use technology at the moment, uh, such as electronic medical records, mobile health apps, uh, telehealth uh, consultations that improve both the communication within the team and the coordination between um, healthcare providers and patients. We know that smoking is a very important problem. So stop smoking also for alcohol. Uh, we, uh, we spoke before about the prehabilitation, nutritional status, or also a good assessment of chronic pain because our patients are older than once upon a time. So now many times they have a chronic uh, drugs for con to control to relieve chronic pain. So in, 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 this, uh, in this area, what we can do about smoking is really a, a, big, a big problem that we need to, to control the patient and said, stop smoking. Well, smoking, I think at the moment, what we see is an epidemic of e-cigarettes, um, which is an aspect that we as anesthetists have little evidence to, um, to support any kind of recommendation or practice. Um, we know that uh, there is, um, uh, so e-cigarettes have um, also a lot of nicotine and probably the same implications of nicotine uh, of of the classical cigarettes are also apl applicable to to patients that use vaping um but there is some evidence which is also of low uh, quality that suggests that vaping um is um is a bit better and uh, the complications arising with vaping are less than with classical cigarettes. Um, so obviously, anesthetists need to also take a history regarding the use of, of, of these e-cigarettes, um, which is important yeah. for our particular long, exactly. How long they are smokers. And then if they switch it to electronic cigarettes, and which one? Because I don't know, but I study for this, and I read that uh, there is a difference, but ICOS and uh, electronic cigarettes. ICOS hits tobacco avoiding combustion. It is still a different way to always inhale nicotine and it is additive. But the electronic cigarette is a vaporizer. And in the liquid use, nicotine is usually absent or in limited quantity. But uh, we have another consideration about this argument is that there are two models for the electronic cigarettes, long shot and quick shot. The first is additive and uses a little nicotine. 
So the second would seem to do less harm. Once again, anesthesiologists are holistic doctors, and for this reason, they must be informed about everything. Absolutely. Um, although, again, as I said before, there is limited evidence um, with the use of e-cigarettes. Um, I think there are some parallels that can be drawn between the physiological and pharmacological effects of smoking and vaping. Um, and this includes, um, I, I read a, a very interesting article about um, the use of a, a lung a lung injury that is directly associated with the use of e-cigarettes. So, um, and the increased risk of uh, myocardial arrhythmias and this unfavorable shift of uh, myocardial demand supply ratio, uh, all of uh, as consequences of nicotine uh, use. The one thing is that they the e-cigarettes do not result in significant carbon monoxide production. Um, although, interestingly enough, the surgical literature does suggest that they still bring problems with wound healing. Um, we don't really know why, but nicotine probably uh, has uh, is in in the in in the core of this, and it has been associated with increased rates of wound infection. We suggest uh, or enhanced recovery after surgery. Learn uh, to suggest to stop smoking at least four weeks before surgery. And do you think it is? We can say the same thing for electronic cigarettes. I don't know if we have some uh, literature. About no. This. Uh, again, um, we assume that the same recommendations uh, that are valid for um, smokers of classic cigarettes um, should also be valid for um, recommendations for, for vapor vapors, if we can call them that. Um, so. Uh, there are a few studies done with eight weeks uh, with a complete um, um, metabolization mm -hmm. of, of nicotine. Um, there are uh, le There is less evidence with four weeks, uh, but I think, I mean, we have to uh, think about this realistically. Um, most patients will not stop smoking or vaping. Uh, so mm -hmm. before surgery, not even a few hours. So. And this is the reality, and independently of what we could recommend, um, nicotine is addictive, uh, it reduces this the stress, um, pe people are submitted to more stress prior to surgery, so I think this is a, um, the devil's Christ, the devil's circle, you know, you, it's a situation where you can't, you can't really solve at the moment. And you know also that the patient with uh, chronic pain have uh, more problem with the drug uh, relief pain because uh, uh, nicotine is a useless and harmful analgesic, but in fact, smokers are not protected about chronic pain. So I suppose it is uh, the same for uh, yeah. use uh, uh, electronic cigarettes. And even... Um this thing that we know about post-operative nausea and vomiting that uh, cigarette smokers are somehow protective. Mm. This is something that is also not known to occur, to occur uh, in vapors. Okay. So if I're older and then uh, smoker is not, is not good. 
they don't feel good. Okay. So I I wanted to speak with you about another aspect. Do you think that um, we spoke before about technology and technology can help us uh, a lot uh, today, but would you like to reduce to share your opinion about the creation of clinical mobile health app for perioperative patients? If we have some example. Well, uh, using mobile health apps in the perioperative care can potentially improve patient out outcomes, reduce hospital stays, and uh, and lower the costs. Uh, these apps um, help patients prepare for surgery. They monitor, they can monitor their recovery progress and um, the patients receive or may receive very personalized care. Um, for example, we could have an app that could provide reminders for medication or physical therapy exercises uh, or offer virtual consultations with healthcare professionals. Um, there are already some examples of mobile health apps for perioperative patients, uh, including those that uh, assist with preoperative preparation, postoperative pain management, wound care and recovery tracking. Additionally, the uh, ESAIC has um, in the last in what the last two webinars that I took part were about uh, precisely this. So um, um, the creation of clinical mobile um, health apps and, and clinics. Um, we have, uh, I, I had a look at what we have. We have uh, for pain, post-operative pain, we have the Panda app, which manages patients mm -hmm. with post-operative pain care. And um, by tracking their pain levels and medication use usage, we have uh, the one called My Recovery, um, which provides patients with personalized care instruction, reminders for medication and appointments and even has a platform to communicate with the care team. There's one called My Surgery Mate, uh, which is obviously more um, focused on preparing for surgery. Um, the app provides information on the procedure, potential risks, um, and includes a checklist for preparations such as fasting and medication. And there's one called Cared For, um, again, with personalized care instruction and a platform to communicate with the team. And the bed, the Medline um, has um, issued some videos uh, called Medline Plus Surgery, which um, in these these videos um, um, they explain the surgical procedures and and what to expect. So overall, um, I think this this has a potential to improve patient outcomes and satisfaction, which is a patient reported outcome in anesthesia, uh, and obviously. We need to make sure that these apps are functional, user-friendly, reliable, and obviously that they um, adhere to privacy regulations and are secure because this is patient-protected data. So we can stay here many other hours and speak about this problem and yes. try to have some answer to our question. But I think we need to close and uh, try to take some home message. So in your opinion, what we can say to our auditorium? Well, I think that uh, we can do a lot to prepare our patients with chronic conditions. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to underline the tailored approach. We have discussed this uh, through the podcast several times. Um, 
I also think that we can't do it alone. So we really need multidisciplinary teams to help us with this. And obviously, if we have the possibility to develop um, um, digital uh, technology to help us with this, then uh, it's like the cherry on the cake. We can do this in a user-friendly manner, uh, which helps the patient and which increases satisfaction and it probably reduces costs and workload for us. Okay, at the end of this conversation, I think I can state the anesthesiologist can do a lot to to better prepare patients with chronic conditions and need to share we in a multidisciplinary team and also uh, learn to use technology but with care because not for all population all population can be used at the same time so we need to tailor our approach to our patient perhaps we need to share a little more and work I, I want to subline this in a multidisciplinary teams. Absolutely. So, Joanna, it's a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. And the ASIC release monthly podcast on the ASIC website and various streaming platforms. We hope you will join us for the next one. 